Inside the Adventure Season 1, Episode 22, with Erica Wiggins. If you've ever been afraid to step outside your comfort zone, then you're in the right place. Inside the Adventure features incredible athletes and everyday people sharing their epic stories of pushing life to its limits. Get ready to be inspired, face your fears, and take action with your host, Marshall Mosier. What's going on, everyone? Welcome to another episode of Inside the Adventure. This is your host, Marshall Mosier, and today we're speaking with Erica Wiggins, the founder and editor of Active Explorer, where she works as a Salt Lake City-based freelance writer specializing in travel, food and adventure, and sports. Also, you do your own podcast as well, right, Erica? Yes, I do. I have the Active Explorer podcast. That's awesome. So for everyone who thinks this is a cool podcast, nowhere near as cool as Erica's. So definitely go check out hers as well and listen to some of those episodes. Uh, But before we dive into our stories with Erica today, I'll tell you a little bit more about our remarkable guest. Uh, Erica has an incredible love for adventure travel, starting from her early days sailing around the South Pacific when she was four years old with her parents all the way to earning her first pilot certificate uh, while in the U.S. Virgin Islands at 17 years old. So she had a pilot's license even before she had a driver's license, which is pretty awesome, but she'll tell you more about that later. (laughs) And over the past 25 years, uh, Erica has been flying, backpacking, caving, diving, maybe even cave diving, camping, and rappelling. And to fund her passion, she's worked as a flight instructor, corporate pilot, and firefighter slash EMT. However, her life hasn't always been full of adventure. In 2005, she threw herself headfirst into a corporate rut as a commercial real estate broker, working 80 hours a week without days off, forcing her to the brink of sanity. In 2008, she began blogging as a form of mental escape. The more she wrote, the more she knew something had to change. So in 2009, she was back out on the trails, kayaking and crawling around in caves again, learning to live on less money and more efficiently manage her business to allow more freedom. Currently, in addition to writing about adventure travel and writing for Ski Utah, she does social media consulting for some businesses that she works with. So that's an incredible story, Erica, with so much in there. And I can't wait to hear about all the different facets of that. But I'd love to get started with telling us more about your childhood. What was your earliest memory of adventure? And what was it like sailing across the South Pacific uh, when you were four years old with your parents? Well, it was pretty incredible. I remember it more like little snippets. Uh, I have visions of a single bay or a moment or a specific snorkeling trip or um, playing with some of the native kids, but, uh, at four years old, my dad was, uh, he owned a company was doing what I was doing in the real estate uh, a few years back, which was working himself to death, total life out of balance. And my mom left me taking me with her. And he said, you know, this isn't okay. Like I need to have my life back. So he learned how to sail in the San Francisco Bay and went back to my mom and said, you know, come back with me and I'll show you a life of adventure. And she did. So that's how we ended up in the South Pacific for the bulk of my childhood. And admittedly, like when I was there, I didn't appreciate how amazing the experience was. 
I just wanted to have like the normal white picket fence and school experience like every other kid. But looking back on it, I am incredibly thankful not only for the good memories, but for the perspective on life and people that it gave me. How do you think that experience changed your perspective from what it is now, um, considering what it may have been if you grew up in a more normal, you know, kind of like you said, white picket fence experience? Well, two ways. One is a uh, greater acceptance of people of all cultures, socioeconomic groups, faiths, colors. I, I just, I grew up with such a tapestry of cultures that it just, that's what I look for. That that was my normal. So I didn't have this narrow view of what culture and society should be. And I really love to be in a tapestry of, that's my favorite word, I think, for it, is a tapestry of cultures. And additionally, I have a much deeper gratitude for living in the United States where we do have so many freedoms and so much wealth. I, I've seen a lot of poverty and I've seen people be so happy with so much less that when I start to grumble about, oh, geez, the dishwasher isn't cleaning well enough today, I shut myself down pretty quickly because I have seen just how joyful life can be on very little in, in with ultimate simplicity. That's a really great way to phrase it. Tell us a little bit more about some of your favorite memories of traveling with your family and while you were growing up. Most of the memories have to do with interacting with the different cultures. Um, we were in one bay, and I wish I could tell you the island that we were on at the time. I know that we were harboring there because there were some hurricanes in the Pacific at the time. But we, uh, and forgive me because you'll hear a dog in the background. That is my black lab, who is a great trail runner and companion. But right now she's excited that the mailman's here. She just so, wants to be a part of the podcast. That's all. Yes, she does. <laughs> so, and uh, but anyhow, um, so one of my memories was that I had this little rowboat, and I would row into shore, and I would have like something I would want to give as a gift, and and I didn't understand that the culture there was if you give a gift, they return one to you that's bigger, and it ended up in this exchange where finally I come rowing back to the boat, and my little rowboat is like four inches above the water at this point you know it's just settled so low that you know it's like I'm, I'm riding low with only like four inches of clearance because I'm weighed down with fish and fruit and breads and all kinds of craziness and my parents just watch me rowing up like with shaking their head like what on earth happened <laughs> you know, what did you do in that village <laughs> wow <laughs> that's amazing um that's it's really interesting to see how cultures are so different in different places. And I'm sure that was an incredible experience. Uh, but in terms of your formal education, um, rather than your informal education of seeing different cultures, what was it like uh, for schooling? Were you homeschooled or did you go to a school somewhere? I was homeschooled. Uh, in elementary school, we used the Calvert program, which is uh, used by a lot of um both missionaries and um, like diplomats and such. And that really was a good classical education. Then for high school, later on, we were in the Virgin Islands and the Caribbean. I had a program from the Uni University of Lincoln, Nebraska. So that one was all correspondence and mostly self-directed. And admittedly, being a teenager trying to do high school work on my own volition, um, I, I, it was slow going and eventually, I just decided to depart that and go straight to college. 
was it ever hard to keep up with uh, the schoolwork on your own pace by having to, you know, keep yourself motivated to, to accomplish it? Yeah, absolutely. Because uh, I think my parents would be the first to admit that they were, um, how shall we say, they were more about their experiences <laughs> than, <laughs> than keeping me on track. So I had to be pretty self-motivated and at the pace I was going, I was just not going to finish, but I actually tested because it was homeschool and you, you accelerate a lot faster without the distractions of being in a classroom. So I ended up just testing out as being at college level in standardized tests. So I just took my SATs and moved on to college. Wow. That's great. It's, uh, it's really amazing how much faster you can get your work done when there's not the distractions of a class. Like you mentioned, it's, uh, it's, it's, uh, as, as someone, um, who didn't do homeschool and did a normal school, I can absolutely see how that would be playing a factor for sure. Yes, definitely. um, (laughs) Absolutely. So tell us how your love for aviation started. How did you go from, um, uh, from where you were when you were describing your, days sailing with your parents to wanting to learn how to fly and eventually getting your pilot's license. My dad is a private pilot, plus several of his friends. And uh, we were on St. Thomas at the time in the Virgin Islands. And several of his friends were learning to fly. And he also noticed that I was reaching an age where I was starting to get less and less interested and paying attention to school and more interested in boys and things like that. So he thought, let's send her for a discovery flight, which is just a flight where somebody experiences the joy of aviation. They can get their hands on the controls and stuff, but you go up for maybe half an hour to an hour of flight time. And I was immediately hooked. I loved it and told my dad right then that I wanted to learn how to fly. I was 16. So I just went straight to solo, but then I kind of had to stall because you have to be 17 to be a private pilot. And shortly after my 17th birthday, I got my private pilot's license. Then I decided I wanted to study that professionally and ended up getting my commercial multi and instrument when I was 18. And then shortly after that, my flight instructor at 19. Then I got my driver's license. (laughs) (laughs) It's so funny. I've got a couple other friends that are really into aviation. And uh, for the aviation community, it's really not that uncommon for someone who discovers aviation at an early age to get their pilot's license before their driver's license. But from the outside world, it just sounds so crazy that you can fly, you can fly a plane, yes. but you can't drive a car. <laughs> but it, I know that you're learning to fly too, and you can appreciate the fact that you don't have a whole bunch of other planes right next to you like you do cars on the highway. Exactly. That was intimidating. <laughs> right. Yeah. It's funny how the the majority of driving is learning how to deal and interact with other drivers, whereas with flying, of course, you have to uh, to learn the um, you know, the, uh, the announcement phrases and how to talk with other pilots in the air and what radio frequency and that kind of thing. But most of it is, is kind of consolidated to your own aircraft rather than aircrafts around you. So it definitely, it does make it a, a little bit easier actually. Yes, it does. <laughs> yeah, that's true. So where, where were you doing this? Where were you learning how to fly at? I learned to, uh, to uh, fly as for my private pilot, mostly on the Island of St. Thomas, which was beautiful. But then my dad did not want me to do my cross countries over water. So he sent me to Vero Beach, Florida, which is where flight safety has a training center to do all of my cross countries. So I did all my cross countries there, returned back to the Virgin Islands and finished taking my check ride. 
which was an experience in itself because the examiner down there is the chief pilot for Aero Virgin, which flies DC-3s back and forth across the islands. So I had to hop on the DC-3 in St. Thomas, get flown over to Puerto Rico, where the plane happened to be that day, do my check ride, and then hop back on the plane and fly home. And (laughs) so it was really kind of this experience. And then from there, I left to go to college or I left a little early before the semester started, went back to flight safety, did my commercial multi and instrument ratings, and then started school at Embry-Riddle in Daytona Beach that fall. Wow, that's amazing. And as so like you said, I'm just now kind of getting into aviation myself. I, uh, um, I don't have my pilot's license yet, but I, I just finished my certification for uh, an LSA, which is a light sport aircraft, uh, which weighs about under 400 pounds. So it's you know, kind of the halfway point almost uh, really kind of getting an actual private pilot's license. But the more I get into the aviation community, the more I realize that everyone who's been flying uh, recreationally for a long period of time, uh, everyone has at least one story of some time when something went wrong or some type of emergency procedure they had to do. Has there ever been a situation like that for you? And what was that story like? I, I've had several. I've had enough flight time to have a few of those, uh, oh, bleep moments. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, you know, I've, I've certainly had engine failures. I can say that I've never had to put the plane back on the ground with the engine out. Uh, I've managed to get restarts in each case, thank goodness, but certainly it had my heart rate up. Oh, definitely. <laughs> I had a... a um, Piper Aztec that I used to fly pretty regularly and it had this intermittent fuel problem. And when you were on one tank, it, it would seem like everything's fine. Then the engine would just die on you. And I had that one cut out shortly after takeoff one day, which was, as you know, when you're um, not, when you don't have much al- altitude right it's after takeoff, but you're at full power, especially in a twin, that is pretty hair raising. Right. So I would say that that one jumped out at me. And then another time in a 421, which is a uh, pressurized and turbocharged twin, I lost an engine on takeoff roll. So we were still on the ground, but that one has so much horsepower that it just throws you when you lose an engine in that plane. And uh, so that was probably my other most exciting moment. <laughs> wow. So what happened when you lost those engines? Did you just have to, I guess for the time when you were in the air, were you able to restart the engine and get full power back? Or uh, On that one, yes. I, at, at first, my hands were full with just con- keeping control of the plane and uh, and continuing the climb out. Fortunately, Aztec is a plane that particularly at sea level, if you're not too heavily loaded, still has enough power to continue a climb. So I managed it switched that engine's fuel uh, fuel tank over to actually an auxiliary tank and got a restart on it. And then the 421, I just killed the power immediately and just kept control of the plane, kept it on the ground. Wow. Well, that's great that you've never had to put it down in a engine out situation. No. <laughs> I had a single die in the air one time too, but I, again, managed to get a restart on it. Wow. So. Well, hopefully there's no more... Uh, stories that are too scary in the future. No. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Well, I know that you've also worked as an EMT firefighter. Um, (laughs) Did did you work as the type of firefighter that would fly the plane and um, let the kind of material come out of the plane? Or was that completely different from aviation? 
No, I was a structural firefighter uh, working in an inner city area around Orlando. So I worked for Orange County, Florida. And I also specialized in technical rescue, which is like trench or vehicle machinery, extrications, high angle, that type of thing. But we were based in uh, an area that's called Holden Heights, which is a fairly depressed area. And that kept us super busy. And I, on my days off, because every, every firefighter has to have a side hustle because you've got 24 on, 48 off. So I was flight instructing on my days off, but I was not flying as part of my job as a firefighter. Okay, gotcha. I, um, I've, I don't know anyone who's done this, but I've seen, and it might be more helicopters rather than planes, but I've seen those aviation firefighters that carry big buckets of, I'm not sure if it's water, but some type of liquid that puts out a fire over a building or over a forest, that kind of thing. Yeah, they uh, the buckets typically are water, and then the um, the tanker aircraft would carry some type of retardant solution. I right. I don't do any. Uh, they're usually run by the wildland firefighters, so I don't know too much about it. But just from an aviation standpoint, I've always been intrigued by that too. It's been really <laughs> it's interesting. Yeah, I've always wanted to meet someone who who's done that to learn more about that how that works, but. From almost similar to your story as, as a firefighter, had, uh, sorry, as a, um, a uh, flight instructor and pilot, have you had any similar stories of times when something went wrong as a firefighter? Nothing too bad. I, uh, I was certainly fortunate. I had a partner who started to have heart problems in the middle of a structure fire that I had to take out. Um, but no, nothing that I, anytime you go into a burning building, which we, we were in a, a pretty busy area, so I had a fair bit of structural firefighting time and your biggest fear would be either getting entangled in there or something collapsing on you and I never had that happen fortunately so I could say that my experiences although every one of them is um, certainly get your adrenaline up I didn't have anything that I would say was a close call uh, in the fire service I feel fortunate for that that's really good that's that's very uh, I've, I've heard of very scary close call stories for some firefighters that I know. Um, and it's, it seems like a very, uh, very rewarding, but, but very difficult job. I loved it. I, I thoroughly enjoyed firefighting. I would have stayed with it. It wasn't compatible to um, being a single parent and eventually at just scheduling and such, I had to choose to leave it. And that was um, when I started to notice that the real estate at the airport where I was flight instructing the, a developer had bought that airport and broke it all up into uh, individual hangar lots and was selling them off. And this guy is making some money hand over fist. And I knew all about it because I'd been teaching out there before this guy ever came along. Seeing that there was so much money changing hands at the airport and it also being in my aviation background specialty, I decided to get my real estate license. And then not too long after that, I went ahead and resigned from the fire service because the Schedule was much more compatible with raising a family, but unfortunately, commercial real estate is one of those professions that is all-consuming, and I just went right down that hole. Next thing I knew, I wasn't doing anything exciting, anything to stay fit, and I wasn't hiking, backpacking, caving, anything anymore. I was just buried in that, that corporate space. What was it like going from that transition of a very adventurous lifestyle to a more corporate lifestyle? It was hard on my emotions and my body. <laughs> I have some pictures uh, so that I ran across of myself actually maybe three years ago where I saw how much weight I had gained 
And I was, I didn't even recognize myself in the picture, but I knew it was me. And, and then I looked at where I'm at now after getting back into a more adventurous space. But I felt like I had lost myself. I felt like if I had to stay in that space, I reached the point where I didn't want to, um, I didn't want to imagine five years out and still being there. I just couldn't imagine it being worthwhile. And I'm not somebody who's prone to uh, feeling depressed so much, but I have to say at that point, I just felt depressed and lost and didn't really know who I was. What gave you the courage to make that final decision of, of stopping that career and, and kind of making that major life switch again? I envisioned my life in five years. It was the middle of the night. I woke up and I could see the ceiling fan spinning. And I said to myself, five years, if this is what it is, how do you feel about that? Envision, you know, picture that. And that was so terrifying to me to imagine still being in that space in five years that I realized that I could give up a whole lot. It was worth so much to me that I was willing to cut back on anything financially, to take risks, whatever, because I just knew I had to make a change. I didn't want to live that life anymore. I couldn't imagine doing it another five years. It seems like it takes an incredible amount of courage to make that realization, especially um, when you're in the situation that you're in as well. Um, and uh, it's it's really inspiring to hear people's stories of of taking initiative and actually making a change. What were some of the steps that you took to actually make that change happen? The first one was to realize that in oftentimes when we say we don't have a choice about something, we actually do. So it's a, it's taking responsibility. The choice may not be pretty. It may not be a, a pleasant choice to have to make, but oftentimes you do have a choice. So in my case, did I have a choice to make less money? Yes. Was it going to be comfortable? Absolutely not. It was going to be a complete change of lifestyle for me. It was going to be really risky. It also meant um, making some changes in my personal life to realize that I was also in a relationship that was unhealthy and, and uh, not good for my emotional being and having to make a change there. So it's facing being alone. It also meant that a lot of the people around me were disapproving because I was making a lot of money and I was doing really well. And they thought I was nuts for scaling back my, my real estate company. It's still open. I still, I still run it and own it. But, uh, I, from a distance, I have an agent in Florida that handles most of that, but scaling that back and going into a profession such as writing and being in the, the adventure writing space, travel, and blogging, people just thought I was nuts. And I had to accept that I wasn't going to have the support that I was used to having when I was doing something more conventional. Was it really difficult to not have the support of, well, not only not have the support, but have your friends and people who cared about you actively saying, I think you're making a mistake in, in switching? And how did you get through that? I focused on the relationships that were more supportive. They weren't the ones that I traditionally had gone to. Like my parents thought, of course they were worried. They just thought I was crazy for doing this. I was so unconventional. 
But I also have a circle of friends in Florida who are in less traditional routes. And one of them is, uh, she's a travel blogger, Rochelle Lucas of the Travel Bite. And I would spend a lot of time with Rochelle just saying, can I do this? What do I, you know, and it at least gave me one voice that said, yes, you can keep going. You can do it. It helps to seek out somebody to be on your committee is how I like to phrase it, who can set an example or give you some feedback. And if you don't have that in your current circle, then you need to seek it out. And that's where I consciously focused on the relationships that were more positive at that point. That's so true. And that's a beautiful way to phrase it as well. It really does make a big difference um, being able to have those relationships from people that might be doing more unconventional things to give you the encouragement that you really need. And in terms of writing, did you start off with a blog or has writing always been something that you've really found a lot of passion in? And how did you take your love for writing into uh, more of a work profession? And how did you make that transition? I have always loved writing. Even when I was in school at Embry-Riddle, I wrote for the school paper. I took journalism courses after I graduated. What I really wanted to do was write from the time I was a teenager. But again, that wasn't something that I had any support in my life to do. So being over 40 and realizing I really wanted to make a change, I knew I had to make the change soon or I wasn't going to get the time that I wanted to really explore explore what is my artistic outlet and where I really have a passion. I had done, I, I of course loved firefighting. I was definitely passionate about that. I enjoy aviation, but what I really wanted was to be a writer from the time I was a teenager. And having that background from the time I was in college, and then I started to study travel writing specifically with uh, Matador U, which is part of the Matador Network, and then writing uh, on my blog, plus other free assignments that I could get to have clips. And then I started taking a bunch of super low pay stuff for some of the content mills, but it got gave me experience with editors. Then I also joined a critique group through the University of Pennsylvania, which can really thickens your skin. <laughs> I'm sure. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so that's how it, it, where my experience led up to making that shift to doing it more professionally. Wow. And how did you end up starting to work for Ski Utah where you're working now? I visited Utah from Florida on an assignment. I was learning how to ski up at Brighton Resort. I was wanted to write about the experience of being a woman over 40, learning to ski for the first time, coming from Florida. And I spent about three weeks out here, and I had another couple of visits out here as well for outdoor retailer and such. And I knew that I wanted a change of scenery as part of the final bit of this transition I wanted to make was also to leave Florida and get to someplace where I could have more outlets for my adventure. And I had looked at places like Denver and Asheville and Lake Tahoe. Salt Lake was totally off of my radar. So I came out to visit and realized this is where I wanted to be home, loaded my boxes and moved out here. And Ski Utah at that time was looking for a new writer and they were asking a few other writers that they knew but who couldn't take the gig, who would they recommend? And some folks knew of me and they said, there's this gal who just moved here you need to talk to. 
And that's been almost four years ago. Uh, and we, I have a great relationship with Ski Utah. They're such a fun crew to write for. They seem like a really great group. I really enjoy their stuff. Oh, yeah, they're awesome. And they just released their uh, winter season magazine, which you can order online on their uh, website. And I have several articles in there. Awesome. Yeah, for everyone listening, definitely check out Erica's articles. I know I'm going to check them out afterwards as well. But uh, so looking back on on all that's happened uh, throughout your life and where you are right now, uh, how would you say the outcome was? Are, are you really glad that you decided to take that step and make that transition? Oh, absolutely. I, I ran across a journal um, just a few months ago that was right about that time, that night, where I woke up and said, what do I want? You know, could I imagine being in this same place in five years and and reading the words that I said then and realizing how much uh, how dissatisfied I was with my life that making the change and going through all the risks and it got quite hairy for a while. I was selling things at one point just to get by. <laughs> you have to do what you have to do. That's right. And and then I was but I sat there on the floor reading that journal and said, look at what's around me now. I am so incredibly grateful to work with great people, live in a beautiful place, have my creativity come out in my words, connect with people on my blog. Actually, I write more on Ski Utah's blog than I do my own. So to the listeners, if they go, boy, she hasn't updated this a whole lot recently, but you'll find me on Ski Utah as the snow travelista with a whole bunch of content over there. As as scary as that decision is in the moment, it's so interesting how it seems to always work out in the end. And that's why we love interviewing people like yourself to really help people understand the transition from going through that big pivot in your life and, and the outcome that often happens. So if you had to give one piece of advice uh, for anyone out there that may have may have been in a similar situation that you were in or is currently in that situation, what would that advice be? It would be two, two things. The first is to take uh, ownership of where you are. In other words, you have more choices than it appears initially. If you really start to look at things deeply, it's just that there are choices that you may not be wanting to consider, such as a drastic change of lifestyle. And oftentimes it's much scarier when you're looking at it from the beginning than it is after you've gone through it. So for instance, for me to get rid of two thirds of my, prof- my possessions because I wanted to downsize and to let go of having new clothes. I love thrift shops and <laughs> economizing and I still do it now, even though I don't have to anymore. I realized what looked so scary at the beginning and, and like, oh, I can't live on that little now is my way of life and I love it and I don't even have to do it anymore. So that would be the first one is to realize you have more choices than it initially appears and that those won't be as scary afterwards as they do initially. So, so spend some time in that space and realize that you can make changes. The next is you know, get control of your, your money <laughs> is real. Living on less is the ultimate freedom. Simplifying, cutting back, shedding any level of debt or extra expense. Uh, the money, the spending is not worth it compared to the freedom that you gain 
by living on less. Well, it's so inspiring to hear the stories of people like yourself that have done exactly that, uh, not just preached the wisdom, but actually lived it themselves. And it's been such a pleasure hearing your story, how it's unfolded, and all of the advice and wisdom you've shared with us today. Thanks so much for being on the show with us. And it's really been a pleasure to, uh, to talk today. My pleasure. And it's been a really nice talking to you as well. Thanks, Erica. And for everyone out there listening, definitely check out Erica's podcast as well, because she's a way better host than I am. So I'm sure. Oh, I don't know about that. (laughs) You're great. Uh, Well, thanks. I'm still new. So, (laughs) well, hey, thanks so much for joining us today, Erica. Uh, You've you've really given some inspiring advice, and it's been such a pleasure to hear your story. Thank you. This podcast is brought to you by Vestigo, a peer-to-peer adventure sharing platform that lets people experience the best an area has to offer by connecting with the local professionals that both have the gear and the knowledge to facilitate incredible and unique outdoor experiences. People have even called it an Airbnb for outdoor guides. Recently, we talked to Tyler, a fan of Vestigo who has gone on four trips so far. Let's see here. So I guess the most memorable so far is uh, Mount Yona. It's my favorite spot. I've gone there with Vestigo, and then naturally I've gone there by myself a couple times afterwards because I loved it. Most memorable because I went rappelling off the side of a mountain for the first time. Do you think you would have gone rappelling if you were not on a Vestigo trip? I do not. No. Uh, Maybe someday in the future. Uh, Of course, just like anything else, you'd be like, yeah, I can get around to that. Vestigo allowed it to be like, let's do it. You want to do it? Here's when, here's where, you know, let's go. What would you say to someone that is on the fence about going on a trip? Go. Just go now. It's, uh, it's, you, you just can't beat it. You can't do it yourself. It's not like they're providing someone the motivation to do something that they could do themselves, but maybe don't. I mean, and, and, and they can, but it's just, there's nothing matched going in a group. I mean, if you want to go on vacation somewhere, whether you want to do some activity, like having the group of people makes it, just makes it. And uh, so so going to do something for the first time with 10 to 15 other people who might also be doing it for the first time that maybe I know them, maybe I don't. We can kind of share our you know nerves or experiences or how awesome it was afterwards. Um, and then just going with someone that knowledgeable, um, you know, it's it just all around... I enjoyed it so much that I've gone back three times since. Vestigo, an adventure sharing platform that provides people the knowledge, confidence, and safety to repel off a cliff for the first time. To learn more about Vestigo, visit their website at vestigo.co, V-E-S-T-I-G-O dot C-O. When you sign up for your trip, use the promo code podcast and receive 10% off your first trip. Vestigo, find an adventure, book a trip, go.